From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Lucy Chen is currently the head of learning design at Curious Cardinals, a platform for middle and high school students to discover and pursue their passion. Previously, she worked on a number of projects as an independent learning experience designer, like her learning object design work at Reach Every Reader Project and her teacher development project at Expanse Online Middle School. Lucy is also one of the first graduates of Minerva University, a newly established nomadic university dedicated to promoting the science of learning and global immersion. In the last couple years of knowing Lucy, I'm consistently impressed by how she finds herself in the middle of seemingly every important conversation in the field of progressive education. Thanks for joining us today, Lucy. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I usually like to start off these conversations by asking you about your personal journey to the education world. Why is this a problem that you want to spend your life solving? And what led you to your current role? Um, so I grew up, I was born and grew up in China uh, in a very traditional family. Um, my parents are both entrepreneurs, but they actually, both of them didn't graduate from high school. So I'm like the most educated person of my family. Um, I personally think I got really lucky with my own education. Um, yes, I went through the Chinese machine, did a lot of test prep. Um, I went to a public school, but it's one, it's called Hangzhou Foreign Language School. So it was a school that I spent six years in both my middle school and high school. And it's one of the most liberal school you can ever find in China, although it's a public school. So in addition to, you know, all the regular um, Chinese saga of test prep, I also did a lot of like extracurricular activities from, you know, running English theater to be trained as a competitive English debater and, you know, ran all the kind of organic communities and the first generations of debater and etc. I felt really lucky of the people I've met and the education I got and let me let me to think a lot about, you know, what is the purpose of education, even from, you know, high school age. And then, of course, one of the reasons I got invited today is I was part of the founding class at Minerva, which is just another whole level, whole new level of um, education venture. Um, I think at Minerva, we were really given opportunities to like explore who we are in a di- like from academics to you know whatever activities we can do outside school. Um, and in addition, I remember there were so many nights that we stayed up till midnight, 3 a.m. to really discuss how can we make the school better, like for altruistic reasons. Um, and that kind of energy and passion led me to see I want to bring, how do I say, like encouraging supportive education and also like explorative education to more people because that's where I grew into a better human being and more courageous human being. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like the personal side of stories. I, I did. I personally think I got great education and I want to do more to, you know, for more people and especially for girls. Um, I can share a whole bunch of other stories related to how to empower girls. Definitely. I want to make sure we can get into all of that and your Minerva stories as well, because being part of the founding class is quite an, I guess we call it an accomplishment, or I'm sure you have many great stories at the very least. <laughs> but can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your current 
uh, work at Curious Cardinals and what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I did a lot of explorations in education tech industry from I began as a UX researcher. Um, so did a lot of product side of work. And later on, I noticed I'm always kind of the liaison like between all the departments from content to product and like business. And I really noticed that learning is not siloed into, you know, the content or, you know, the platform that interact with. So I slowly discovered my way of learning experience design, where you really try to empathize with the learners from, you know, place A to B, where they are now, where they want to go, or at least it's their design to go. Um, so right now at Curious Cardinal, um, I am the head of learning design. I work very closely with teachers how to design curriculum and like any experiences that interface with students to support them to become you know more confident and better teachers. I also work with students when they run into difficulties. And also just took a more strategic view of like, what does the whole service flow look like? Um, that also means I work very closely with my tech team as well. So it's a bit of like everything, but with a student learning experience in mind. Super cool. Let's dive in a little bit more. So I know the mission, as the listeners heard in the intro, the mission is incredible, trying to give students um, the ability to discover and pursue their passion. It's an incredible mission. But how does that actually happen, right? What, what does the product look like? How does the, the company and organization work to achieve that amazing and ambitious end? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our official offerings include one-on-one mentorship um, slash tutoring, as well as um, we call it passion discovery workshops. So the workshops are usually five to 10 students, and it range from topic from aviation to astronomy to French storytelling. It's basically whatever our mentors, who are all college students, are passionate about. So they can like design an interdisciplinary course of like how take anthropological perspective to astronomy Uh, or we have a ballet dancer slash NASA aviation researcher like how she take the perspective of you know incorporating how literature has been discovered like has been describing the human discovery of space etc so there are a lot of like interdisciplinary courses that are driven by the teacher's passion and uh, we take the opportunity to kind of Um, help students discover their passion by exposing them to very interesting um, uh, topics. And all the classes or workshops are super um, dynamic and like discussion driven, um, active, active learning pedagogy has been really important for us. And then on top of that, we also have one-on-one offerings where um, some teachers play this role of mentors. So in addition to, they can choose to opt in for a passion project. So they come with a relatively broad ask of like, oh, I want to learn a bit more coding or I'm interested in business. Then our mentor will work with them to design, you know, a two month long or semester long, depending how long they want to engage um, project and um, care. So through through the learning of uh, learning through project to uh, make something happen. And uh, we will also embed a few mini lessons out there. Um, so these are our primary offering now, but we're also thinking about 
um, kind of building a uh, community on top of it. Uh, we have about um, 3,000 students at the moment. Uh, we're building kind of actively bridge for them to share their work, share their progress, and like get more peer-to-peer support and learning in. And that's something we're working down the road. Amazing. Let me ask you a more philosophical question, if you'll let me, which is... <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, so let's assume Curious Cardinals takes over the world, right? Let's assume you have these interest-based classes available to all the students. Do you think that fully replaces school? Do you think there is still role, a role of a more traditional school or a standardized, you know, breadth of, you know, high school experience that students should uh, should have to go through? Or is this purely interest-based, you know, more self-directed um uh, is that the path, right? Does school still have a role in this curious cardinal's future, if you will? Yeah, uh, one uh, school definitely has a role, um, but I, hopefully it's becoming more open-ended and less of like the machine factory model. Um, two, there are a lot of blending between this informal learning um, or the school context learning. So we curious cardinals actually have eighteen school partners. We actually go into um, you know, do curious cardinal workshops in their intermission or their summer sessions and etc. So there's already some collaboration happening. Um, but you know, take a step back. Um, like um, Gary, you know, I've been working a lot with schools as well. And prior to curious cardinal and trying to come up with like, new models of a school, and a huge part of it, is I fundamentally believe, it really takes time for teachers and mentors to get to know about students. Right. Even if you engage as a mentor, you meet once or twice a week. But think about how much time students spend at school. So I feel school definitely has its own role um, regarding just how much time it takes students and how much potential knowledge to be known about each individual student that these more informal or extracurricular like uh, education offerings like yours cardinal cannot achieve so to some extent as an educator or learning experience designer i'm more jealous of like teachers who are in quote-unquote formal schools uh, from the lens because they actually get more information about how about how students are you know regarding their academic performance but also their mastery and growth um so i do really think um schools are a very important context uh, for students. Um, but I definitely have a lot to say about how they can change and like become more Curious Cardinal-like. Don't worry, we'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that. Um, I really appreciate that answer because that's how I feel about it as well, which is the role of a school in the 21st century isn't to create content, really isn't to, uh, you know, instead what it should do is what you were saying. It's about the relationships you build. It's about that community. It's about the accountability, that social motivation and the inspiration therein. That is what school should do. That part should be bundled. But all the interest-based classes and, you know, all the wonderful things that, that you're working on and these other platforms can offer, that can be unbundled, right? But seeing a student every day in a classroom and building those deep relationships which is very much lacking in most traditional schools, I will say. But the platonic ideal of a school that does this <laughs> uh, is super valuable. 
Yeah. Um, you can also think of like, you know, to the idealist form, school is a place to return, right? Or a place to go to. It's a very grounding space where students gather and they know they will be supported and etc. And these after school program or like the, you know, extracurricular support or kind of a la carte um, offerings that can make the school life more abundant. And um, that's like one way to collaborate. Um, but my one of my personal kind of vision or pursuit as a change maker in the education industry is eventually think about like a more open ended model of school, right? Maybe they spend half of the time, you know, of the weekdays to be together and the rest are kind of like learning spread it all over city, you know, somewhat Minerva like and etc. I just fundamentally believe that the shape and form of schools will change, but the concept of schools and school system needs to stay. And it's it's a stabilizing factor psychologically for students and also society it has on societal functions. Amazing. Completely agree. <laughs> Let me take a step back and ask you about your experience doing these cutting edge educational experiences like Minerva and 42 in some ways. Um, how one can you just tell us what it was like to be we'll start with Minerva, a student in this radical young new college and how that uh, you took that experience to inform your, I guess, pedagogy and how you think about education. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I always say the influence of Minerva on me, what like just is more amplified year by year. You know, the deeper I am into learning design work, the more I understand why my professors back in the days designed things certain ways. Although I had a lot of objection as a student. Um, yeah, um, I also realized I. I don't know if all our listeners actually are familiar with Minerva. Maybe I can give a very quick intro of Minerva as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. So Minerva um, is a innovative university. So it's a four-year liberal arts college that takes students to seven countries to finish their studies. And we've developed the Active Learning Forum to allow um, about 15 people kind of online engaging classroom. Uh, we built the software in-house. Um, students were actually very actively involved in earlier days on developing this piece of software to make sure it's really designed for the classroom and for learning and teaching, not just a v- another video conferencing tool. Um, take a lot of pride in that. Um, and every city we go, in addition to the academic learning remotely, um, which are all synchronous, um, we also go into the city, work with civic partners um, to kind of apply what we've learned and also explore. Um, so my journey took me to San Francisco, Berlin, Buenos Aires, Hyderabad, Seoul, um, and some of our future classmates also went to Taipei, which um, my founding class didn't because of visa issues, which is a regret. Um, yeah, so talking about experience as a founding class student, um, I actually went from Bowdoin College. I studied at Bowdoin College for a year. Um, You know, I came to the United States from China and I'm like, I want to become a good human, Um, you know, through my college education, not just like get a job. I have to ask, you said you had more traditional Chinese parents. How did they feel about this swap? Um, I am still doing my work to uh, show them kind of like the good impact of Minerva and Bowdoin on me. So at a time, my mom was terribly like disappointed in me because I actually didn't even apply to many university or research universities or IVs 
while you know everyone in my school, including my mom, were expecting me to be like the Harvard girl. My, well, I got my master's degree at Harvard later, which made my mom happy, uh, half jokingly. Um, yeah, so um, I think I kind of like made a commitment to myself that, you know, during my college time, I do want to explore and including, you know, academically, but also like I want to explore who I can be as a human being, because that's not really part of the education in K-12, in K-12 education system in China. Um, so I reserve a lot, like I took, you know, feminist study courses to, you know, philosophy courses. And later on, I majored in psychology and et cetera. But I did a lot of exploration prior to that. Um, and at Minerva, back to the story, um, I think the learning was really multidimensional because one, you know, like every college student, I need to focus on my academics, right? But Academics are designed in such an interdisciplinary way where I'm constantly put into the driving seat, like, um, you know, beyond basic things like designing your own major, pick your own courses. Um, the courses are designed super interdisciplinarily and we have a lot of projects that we need to pull out in the city. Like I was doing a research paper on economic policy when we were in Argentina. And at a time there was so much fluctuation and like inf inflation regarding their currency. Like I'm exp experiencing paying like eight pesos for my empanadas to like 12 pesos during like my four month of stay and how like it's just so in the DNA of Minerva to like integrate your learning into your environment or whatever kind of world you're in touch with. And I noticed like I'm trying to design a lot for my students at Curious Cardinals uh, about that. Like how do you connect your driving questions or whatever project or class you're taking really bring that back into the real life, right? You're not just sitting in an armchair and thinking about and looking at the world. You should be living in the world while you learn. Um, and on the other hand, as I mentioned, there are a lot of like sleepless nights where our 28 founding class students get together and try to think of like, how can we make the school better? Um, I've never been in another environment where there's so much like voluntary agency. Uh, I think partly it was given through Minerva, like literally they gave the founding class, 28 of us, a t-shirt that writes founder. Um, it's a little bit too Silicon Valley-y, you know, in the beginning, a lot of like the startup vibe, but it's also kind of like trust and um the, the professors were literally like alone us and everyone is very genuine about making iterations and taking in feedback. Um, it's like 10, 20 times faster than Harvard, where later I like literally need to, you know, run research of 400 students and let them present my research. And it took me like two months to talk, even like talk to the right person about, about it. While Minerva, you know, we can directly write emails and like, like, of course, like be respectful and improve our feedback uh, capabilities. But the channels are there. The intentions are there. I've never seen any other university iterate at the same speed. Um, and, you know, low, low, low iteration innovation is kind of a challenge that a lot of universities are facing these days. But do you think that sort of 
tight knit experience where everyone you know can contact anyone. Do you think that's an experience that scales? Is Minerva a wonderful experiment that works for a couple hundred kids, or is it something that can truly become the engine to give you know hundreds of thousands of international kids um, a liberal arts, world class education? Yeah, you're really sharp. Um, every institution will have like the scaling pain, like the um, you know when I. I started off as 28 people. I graduated with uh, 150 because we combined with the second class. Right now, each class of Minervans are like 150 to 180. Um, so in total, we have about close to 1,000 students graduated this far um, in the past close to a decade. Um, I definitely felt kind of like obvious change of culture because, you know, maybe like lower percentage of students are actually taking up this kind of ownership role and writing long emails to improve certain things. The system is much more stable and comprehensive. There are just like literally less things to be improved about. And it's like much less chaotic. So you're like the real question you might be asking is like, can we keep this kind of like engaging and you are an owner kind of environment and, and like culture when we scale to a you know, a thousand people or even 10,000 in the future. Um, pessimistically, no, it won't be the exact same vibe, but I would say the fundamental things about fast iteration, respect for students' feedback, and like training students to always find things to improve within the school or the city that we go to, it's a mindset that's so in the DNA of Minerva that I believe it will like live its own way. For instance, in our first year, we might be like, it's our first contact with, you know, the SF Department of Innovation around the parklets. Um, so they're like uh, two, a three meter by six, uh, two, two meter by three meter living innovation zone as a city innovation. So in the first year, uh, we were only able to kind of propose ideas. But the future generations of Minervans, some of them actually see through the design and even build of some of these projects. So they might be engaged in a different flavor. You know, in the first class, we're like, we really should do this. And it's a lot more strategy, a lot more persuasion, and even like semi-lobbying. But to the future generations, as a project evolved, opportunities for engagement has become design and build. It may be like slightly less like entrepreneurial in a way, but it's like a different way of engagement. And I see Minerva students find opportunities to do that. And Minerva as a school will build facilities and infrastructures to support more of these engagements. As you were saying that the community projects, it reminded me of a conversation I had on this podcast as well as recorded. I don't know if it's out yet, but um, with Trace Pickering, who's the co or the founder of Iowa Big, um, which has a huge emphasis on right project based, community based mm -hmm. projects. Um, and one thing that he said, I've heard him say before, but he said it on the podcast as well, um, is it's very hard to just source that many projects for students, right? You kind of have to empower the students to source them on their own. But if my understanding of Minerva is correct, it might be outdated. A lot of it is top down, them identifying and, and handing projects to students. One, is it still that way? <laughs> and two, um, do you think that piece specifically is sustainable with scale, right? 
Um, I actually want to, frankly, to propose alternative view on that. Um, I think it really depends. So for the first year, for the capstone projects, um, there are much more designed and structured and even facilitated by um, some of our professors and student experience directors um, to ensure that, you know, first year freshman students can kind of understand, you know, what does it take to research? What does it what does a good proposal look like? What does a high quality project look like? So there are a lot of scaffolding and like systems, while the second, third, fourth year are really more of an ecosystem approach. So, you know, take a step back philosophically, there are like um, systems that give directives, right? You do this, do this, and you come out with a beautiful project. Um, and I think in a lot of K-12 scenarios, because you're facilitating 30, 50 kids to go through a similar project, you actually need, you know, very specific directives and like resources in place to, you know, making sure kids are learning through the process. But there's another approach, which is more ecosystem driven. It The more important is about showing the potential, you know, what we can possibly achieve and also provide some opportunities. And the opportunities are more like access to resource and, you know, and then the real from point A to B or how do we design C and D in between is leaving on to the students with, you know, mentorship and guidance. So I feel Minerva in the second, third, fourth year intentionally put less systematic design, like not to say, Every first year, everyone solved the homeless problem in SF, and we have like 10 partners already lined up in the past few years. But in the later years, you're going to different cities, like your interests would evolve. So find civic partner yourself, um, although they will also be gathering to kind of do the initial introductions. But you take it to become a research project, you take it become an internship, and et cetera. And it's more about that ecosystem. And the support that Minerva provides is kind of the advisory, right? You have an academic professor, kind of like you talk to them about what kind of like academic learning you can apply with, within the project proposal. And then we have student experience directors kind of checking in with you on different milestones and then working on a way to manifest your learning outcomes. And I see that as much more of an ecosystem approach, which is a lot more sustainable and also trains students to go out and look for different resources and learning opportunities. Fascinating. I love that. That's the direction we're going in at SOAR as well. It's how can you empower students to do things for themselves, right? Because that is a double whammy. One, it's a lot less, um, you know, work and, and resources the school has to dedicate towards sourcing that. But also, it's just this is a valuable skill. Getting told no five times yep. is just as valuable as the actual doing of the project. That's how the real world works, right? That persistence. So yeah. I love that answer. Yeah. So when I was in China, I was advising quite a few kind of schools that try to kind of set up the entrepreneurship extracurricula. And a lot of schools stress about this exact question of like, how can I supply like 20, 30 entrepreneurs who can be mentors for my 20, 30 kids who want to do entrepreneurship project, right? But a lot of these kind of concern comes from as schools or as teachers, we need to provide all of the resources. But rather, I think 
you know, the mindset change here would be like, let's provide 50% to help them get started and work with them along the way when they notice they need more resources. Let's help them to brainstorm how they might be able to get it. If they cannot get it, what are some plan B? And it's much more real world and also train students on much more fundamental skills around like decision making, project uh, management, collaboration, etc. Let's switch gears a little bit um, because I'm I'm very curious to lean on one of your past experiences, which you just alluded to, which is the work you did in the Chinese education and ed tech scene. So as as I know, you know, but as our listeners may not know, the Chinese ed tech scene has been going through some, I guess, some some growing pains or I don't know what you would call them over the last couple months. So first, can you give a little bit of background to the listeners on what's been happening and then just shed some light on where is this huge billion plus person market going? Yeah, um, man, I have like, it's such a personal topic in addition to like a, I don't know, like a policy analysis topic for me. Uh, A little bit more background. I mentioned personally, I grew up in China. So it's like my home country, a lot of like connections, uh, but also worked in the Chinese Learn Capital, Blue Elephant Capital, the first VC found that um, supports ed tech companies only in China. Uh, so I've been watching very closely of what happened, what is happening uh, in Chinese market. Uh, recently in July, the Chinese government released a new policy called Shuangjian, meaning double alleviation, and to crack down basically the private market of after school subject-based tutoring and it's about to just give a reference of scale it's about like 70 billion dollar industry just like plummeted overnight and um, some of the official kind of reasons are like it's true that you know the after school prep is like taking up all the young people's time like you know on a weekday you you get off school at 5 p.m and then you like go to after school prep till like nine and on weekends and basically it's all occupied you learn math you learn english and then you learn scene um like whatever subject you can think of there's like a supplier or multiple suppliers to teach the kid um and on the other hand they put a lot of like economic burden on families i think there's a report saying like 30 percent of family income are going to education um and lot like way more spent outside school than within school a lot from like you know like cultural and social pressure right if your neighbor is doing it or classmate is doing it like even as a liberal parent who doesn't want to pressure our own child t- children too much, like I'm like I have to do it, otherwise my kids is like leaving behind. Um, yeah, and like I think the thoroughness and like black, the policy is really black and white. And now local governments are kind of implementing it, and we even have a central government office specially designed to supervise the whole kind of progress. Um, And it's really a, it's not a sudden, but it's very kind of like, um, I would really call it like overhaul. Um, So the biggest um, K-12 companies like TAL, New Arento, you know, if you look at their stock, it's basically just like nothing now. Um, And um, they need to, most companies need to remove their major business and trying to turn to new models like more competency-based education. Um, I personally feel suspicious if like China can actually turn around so fast because teachers are not trained 
to, you know, teaching a more formative and mastery based approach because um, China has been test oriented for so long and there's no imminent changes regarding the selection system of testing in China. So I think it will take three to five years, in my view, to go through some chaos a lot of undergrad, uh, underground tutoring market and some schools and some, you know, these education companies will say more things about, you know, let's be more competency based and like holistic education. But it will literally just really take time for like the actual practices to turn around. So long term, I feel positive. But, you know, the three classes of high schoolers right now in in um, that are going through high schools will suffer quite a lot because they are, will be need to take tests, but the education they receive is kind of lacking compared to previous cohorts. So they haven't done any, and excuse my ignorance because I don't understand this problem super in depth, but so they haven't overhauled their assessment systems, their high, high stakes exams. These still exist. Yeah, they still exist. Um, they're not also like no imminent announcement on changes because that concern like Gaokao has been, quote unquote, the most fair system given such a big population size in China. And there's no way they're going to be changed to be like, let's do a portfolio based model and overnight. And it's going to be like right. everyone. Yeah, it seems odd. And this is the same conversation we have in the U.S. internally, or I guess in the progressive education space, which is that's just treating a symptom. But the root cause, the reason why there's this market pressure on families and the social pressure on families is because this high stakes test exists. Right. And to your point of even all this rhetoric in the U.S. around let's get rid of standardized testing. And this is a popular sentiment in the progressive education space. I think we're not thinking the problem fully through, which is if we don't reform our schools then to support this, what's gonna happen if we have a portfolio-based review for students getting to get into college, but we don't have that support at the school level? What's gonna happen? Well, which types of kids can afford to create the best types of projects, right? <laughs> like if it's all extracurricular portfolio review and we're not working on that in a government school level, how the heck is that gonna work, right? That talk about inequalities in education. So anyway, all that to say, I feel like a lot of these governmental policy overhauls, using the word you you said, I feel like they're just not very intelligent views of the whole ecosystem, both in the U.S. and internationally. This isn't this isn't just one country. <laughs> yeah, I resonate as like many countries kind of like are kind of going through the same growing pain. Um, that there is more a lot of willingness and hope to become more holistic and competency based. And there are a lot of talking, especially from experienced educators or evangelists. But top down approach, um, I really don't see is the right way to go or like feasible way to go, just because the school systems are designed for selection and not designed purely like primarily for learning. If you know, put a flag on it, uh, put a stick on the ground. Um, But I do feel hopeful because both in America and China, a lot of parts of the world, there are a lot of ground up efforts from educators and like networks of schools are trying to like, you know, like MTC and like initiatives to connect kind of like the university and a school um, to do more regional efforts. And I think those are... Uh, those systems also take time to experiment, 
right? And we will have some more outcomes and good results coming out from these experiments. So the bigger system can see that it's like doable, similar to we've been talking about project-based learning for so long, but compared to three years ago, we can name so many successful schools that have done it. And there's so much resources and infrastructure to support that. And like, I think adoption of project-based learning is like much easier, you know, compared to three years ago. And I hope um, more um, comprehensive and holistic education assessment system can be born out of these reform efforts as well. I love that. Here's to hoping. <laughs> uh, it might take you and I, you know, our, our organizations Cheers. might take us to finally change these things. But hopefully the government can turn on a dime and get out of the 19th century in their pedagogy. <laughs> um, so let's switch gears again. Third time I've said that. We're jumping all over the place. Uh, let's talk about your experience at 42. I know it wasn't as comprehensive as, as the amount of time you spent at Minerva, but I've always been intrigued by their model because they stand for something that I deeply believe in, which is peer-to-peer learning and its transformative potential to drastically lower the cost of education long term. So um, talk to me a little bit about your experience there. Sure. Um, give a brief Kind of introduction. Forty two is a French, um, you know, uh, education innovation project that um, aims to educate like computer science talents. Um, I was I did an their one month piscine swimming pool program uh, in Fremont, California. That's their first campus outside Paris. Um, and how it works is there's literally no teacher, so they enroll about two to three hundred students and just kind of in this like massive hole of MacBooks, um, iMacs to, and then they pre-designed the um, computer program to design a 30 day challenge. You have a pro- like a challenge to solve every day. And they wrote out really comprehensive program to, you know, all kinds of edge cases. And it's really hard to get a hundred every day and you kind of learn little by little. But as Garrett said, the important thing is it's a almost like pure peer-to-peer learning. There are a few like more experienced people who have gone through the program are there to help, um, but the way, it's like a high pressure and low instructor support environment. So my classmates all like come together and try to problem solve ourselves and we'll organize study groups. And you know, some people come in with like a year or two of CS education, they kind of naturally become the people who actually go through, like try to teach other people um, to learn and they will like figure out different ways to explain what a list mean and what our different kind of data type mean. And they actually uh, are like actually come up with, you know, meaning lessons and, you know, word by mouth will be like, hey, Matt is really good at it. So the second day, you know, the little mini classroom went from five people to 10 people. Um, and it's amazing to see um, so much like self-organized learning activities happening and It's literally like you wake up, you go to the lab and then like you eat and then you program till you need to sleep and you go back. Um, And also just as kind of like another intricacy piece of design is like it's actually difficult to get a hundred, even if you have, you know, solid CS background because they're designing all those kind of tricky edge questions. And there's this like a sense of challenge and like I need to like solve this puzzle. So even for people who have like solid CS background, they spend almost as much time in the lab and different people come in with like different learning goals and like naturally differentiated. But 
like regarding like my goal was like firstly I was like I'm gonna get 40 <laughs> and that was like my goal and slowly I can get to like 60 70 but I never like one day I got 90 and that was like so great and these like naturally designed you know challenge it's really like like a game like it's an immersive game where like all players help each other um and you know you can get your own achievement depending on your level is coming in. So it's a very, very interesting, like peer-to-peer environment um, thrown into the swimming pool and try to learn to swim ourselves. That's so cool. That's so cool. When I first heard about 42, I thought it, I thought it was too good to be true, right? The the fees, are they still zero or are they just very low, the fees to attend the program? Um, I think um, it's, you should consider it uh, very low because there's still living costs. Um, and they don't have the dorm to support everyone. But, you know, compared to all other education programs, the learning part is free. That's incredible. It's incredible. But I'm curious to hear from a learner's perspective. I've, I've only met a few people who are in the more administrative side of uh, 42, or the, I guess. Um, so do you think it only works for a certain type of learning that, that you know, yep. anyway, I'll let you describe it. <laughs> um, I think 30 percent people quit after first day and then 50 people quit after first week um hugely out of frustration like you sit in front of like you know um i'm not really um a master in computer programming i did very little and like i just went through all the frustration myself sometimes you literally just need someone to like debug for you and otherwise you would like stare at a bug like for quite a few hours and have like zero. I think that's the path, even if you're in a traditional program, I think that's just the case for everyone in computer science. Like the real thing that cuts out people who know computers and people who don't know computers is just how much frustration you're willing to endure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, I mean, one, it might be discipline, um, but two, like not able to get answer until the end of the day. Like we submit a program uh, to get the answer. Like even the more advanced people, like they're making their best guesses. And every every t- day, 8 p.m., the, the answer, the score will be announced. And then like we spend the rest of the night trying to figure out what we did wrong. Um, the, yeah, you were asking like, if it's only for certain kind of personality, like perseverance is so important and curiosity too. People who kind of quit 42, some, a lot of them came in with like very high expectation. You know, they, they've heard this like cool thing. You need to apply like a year ahead. I finally got in. I'm going to like become a master in programming. And they really hope to like get something out of the whole process and wish to be handheld. Every day I'm making progress. I'm learning something. And after 30 days, I'm going to be some level rather than coming with a more open-ended mindset of like, this is like an exploratory journey. Um, And I will learn something if I persevere through it. And that's kind of like how the program tries to set expectation. So for people who come up with like much more utilitarian pursuit, it's really not a program for them. Um, In my prior job, I actually worked with um, bootcamp. I was designing machine learning engineering content and springboard prior to Curious Cardinal. Like I can see very different kind of student persona just regarding like their relationship with goals. Um, I mean, for students who come to boot camps, of course, most of them have like a very concrete goal to pursue after the programs. Um, But some of them like that urge really stops them from actually going deep and learn. 
Um, and like to a huge extent, I feel people who enjoy the 42 most are like actually explorers. And like, I remember my last exam. So we do have like three exams. Um, I like literally was able to persevere like three, the, the exam is like eight hours. And I like clear remember I sat for like three hours to like debug this one thing. And like, I got like 50 points out of it. And that was like the biggest achievement I've ever had in that whole camp. And I like, I can totally relate what you're describing of like sitting through the pain and knowing that, you know, your exploration will still be worth it, but you know, maybe you will figure it out. And I thought that was- I remember, I remember when I was first teaching myself to program, I would sit in front of an error code for literally days. Because literally days, and this is a common story, and this is something that we try to tell our students, which is, I guess the analogy is, if you ask people who go to the gym all the time and love that, you ask them, you know, why do you do that all the time? And they'll say, I've learned to love the struggle or something similar to that. And I think that's very similar to education in general. And people who don't have this mindset, people who think that learning is something that comes to you easy or someone can just put knowledge in my brain without me working hard. That's simply not how it works. There's struggle in anything of value, including learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think 42 took pain to a amusing level. Uh, it's very unique by design. I don't think it applies to all programs. <laughs> kind of has to be to be free like that or low cost. And that's, yeah, it's got to be a bit of a strainer i suppose you could say <laughs> that's tough we've discussed a lot of things about education today a lot of aspirational you know how we want pedagogy and school to to evolve but if you could wave a magic wand and change one or maybe two things about traditional education whatever that means to you what would those those things be yeah um i think like short and medium term very concretely like i want to do as much project-based learning as possible you know with my with curious cardinal initiative but also kind of helping schools um to do that um and i think a huge part of it is to empower more educators to think like designers and like kind of carry on a lot of the mindset of like it is an exploration journey they will learn things and what we need to do is actually providing scaffolds rather than like try to do everything for them. Um, you know, hold on that urge and like let students learn. It's not like every teaching hour that matter, but it's the learning hours that are that really matter. Um, and long term, um, I mentioned um, previously, like I still want to build schools, like a more open ended school system where. I think the boundaries of formal and informal learning are more fluid. Um, it's a place where students feel really safe and a place where they can see their growth um, from the support of adults and peers. Um, and also like a place that they can be celebrated for the work they did. And also just like, you know, the learning pangs and like the failures and everything can be celebrated. And I speak of that because... I feel, I, I don't know, I may be like very wishy right now. I really feel love and trust are like the highest thing that any educator or any education system can possibly offer to any learner. And um, I, I really wish for to build such kind of a fluid and supportive space uh, where 
you know, the good things and the improvements are all celebrated and accepted. So that's kind of a more long-term goal of designing school for myself. It's a great place to leave it off. That was wonderful. So thank you, Lucy, so much for for being on the show with us today. As a last comment, if people want to stay involved with your journey or the journey of Curious Cardinals, how might they do that? Thank you, Garrett. Um, As I mentioned, uh, we do workshops and one-on-one mentorship. Um, We actually just released our fall workshops. So you can just go CuriousCardinals.com to see our newest offerings. Lots of very interesting classes. Um, and if you have more specific kind of like needs for 101, uh, you can, you know, a few buttons away, you can be connected to a very talented mentor. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, if you're an educator who is super passionate about project based learning and kind of like making project based learning connected to passion, I'm always like an email away and um yeah, very excited to be connected with educators who really want to bring passion into more students. Awesome. What is that email, Lucy? <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> yes, it's uh, lucyblucy at gmail.com. So Lucy, L-U-C-Y-B-L-U-E-C-I-E at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much again for being on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soar's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.